Live from WNUR News, I'm Jungun Jennifer Kim. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM slash HD1, Evanston, Chicago. It's Monday, April 18th, 2022. Tonight on WNUR News, efforts to revitalize Evanston's late-night food scene, the new age-appropriate lightning thief, the danger of Northwestern's prized architecture for migratory birds, and a new WNUR segment, The B-List. Those stories coming up tonight on WNUR News at 6. Thanks for tuning in. Any Northwestern student knows the problem. It's 10 p.m., you're hungry, and there's nothing open downtown. What is one to do? Reporter Jack Izzo provides one solution. has a food problem. In particular, a late-night food problem. Northwestern University is right next door, and the students are hungry for food 24-7. But the COVID-19 pandemic forced some of the last remaining late-night refuges to close down, which leaves many students lacking options when they're craving a midnight snack. I'd say Evanston as a whole is not like a nightlife town, and their restaurants close very early, sometimes like even before like I normally eat dinner. If you are hungry at all after 8 p.m. in Evanston, like you're kind of out of luck. There's no like late night snack spots at 2 in the morning, and I'm very sad about that. It's kind of just Uber Eats, wherever you can find a deal. Um, I would say I don't even really think about getting late night food anymore just because I know there's no options and if there are options, it's ridiculously expensive. And I don't know, I kind of expected more from a college town, I'm not going to lie. But one student-run restaurant is helping change that problem. They're called The Table, and they're open for delivery from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. They're trying to cater to the Northwestern population that most Evanston restaurants aren't. But they're still relatively unknown among the student body. So I went down to their kitchen to see what it's about. My name is uh, Joshua Bloom. Um, I'm currently a junior at Northwestern University. That's Josh Bloom. He didn't start the table, but he's the mastermind behind their current operation. I'm the managing director, so I oversee the operations for the table. I help develop the menu, run the meetings, I cook the food. I do it all, basically. Um, but I have a great team to support me as well. The table started in 2017, serving breakfast food early in the morning to give students on campus another breakfast option. But as the COVID pandemic hit, the table switched its business model from serving breakfast to focusing on the late night scene, from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. I think we're, we're all insomniacs here, so <laughs> it's not, this is like, this is our regular hours. This is like, like, uh, this is like 7 p.m. for us. Josh actually doesn't like the business model they're using now and hopes to offer more hours and service in the future. But he does agree that Evanston's late night food scene has been affected by the COVID pandemic. We're the only people in the market basically right now. So we're the only people doing deli- late night delivery at that hours. Um, a lot of the students really love love the food um, and, and love the fact that we're like solving this problem that has been around for ages. But since the table is an option for students, I did want to know, is the food actually good? What's on the menu? So I wanted something that was like late night friendly, right? Greasy food, like mac and cheese, burgers, fries, th- those kinds of things. Um, I feel like a lot of those foods are like pretty hard to elevate. Like pizza is like, I don't know, pizza is pizza, like you can get it from Domino's. It's hard to make that really good. Um, burgers are just like logistically challenging. Um, so I feel like fried chicken was like the best thing that we could make that was like very easy to execute, but like could pack in a lot of flavor. I came in at a pretty slow time in the night. So Josh offered to whip me up a chicken and waffle sandwich, which I wasn't gonna turn down. It did get slightly delayed though. 
I don't know. I, I feel like people, um, something they don't initially realize from the tables, like the thought and care that we like put into, oh, order in. Eight piece chicken nuggets, cookies and cream milkshake. You got the milkshake, man? Yeah. Nice. As we were finishing up the interview, a new order came in. So Josh went to go deal with that before he made me my sandwich, but eventually it got made. Oh, wait, no, no, hold it up. Oh, the mic? Yeah, get oh, the yeah. crunch. Oh, that's true. Excellent point. All right. Mm. Mm. Okay, that's really good, yeah. That's my bad on the crunch. I took a bad bite, uh, but that did not change how I felt about the sandwich. It was definitely worth coming. If you're interested in ordering from the table, they're open for delivery from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. You can order through Grubhub or DoorDash at the moment. For WNUR News, I'm Jack Izzo. Welcome back to WNUR News. It's 6.17 p.m. Central Time. Moving on to arts and entertainment. Exciting news last week at the first cast member of the new Percy Jackson the Lightning Thief Disney Plus series was announced. But will the show live up to fan expectations or at least be better than the movie? Jordan Manji has more. It's over, demigods. I am thrilled to be the first to tell you that Percy Jackson and the Olympians is really, truly, and for sure coming to your screens. The smart folks at Disney Plus have given us the green light. Didn't we already get a Percy Jackson live action movie? And wasn't it kind of bad? Never fear, Rick Riordan is giving his beloved kids book series a second go at a screen adaptation, this time in a series format. Percy Jackson and the Olympians is a five-book series about modern-day demigods, that is, the child of a Greek god and a mortal. The protagonist, Percy, is a problem child who keeps getting kicked out of school. When Greek mythological monsters attack him on a class trip, the 12-year-old's life changes. He is taken away to Camp Half-Blood, a summer camp for demigod kids, to learn about their parents and hone their talents. Percy finds out he is the son of Poseidon, the Greek god of the sea, and must go on a quest to rescue his mom from the underworld and catch whoever stole Zeus's master lightning bolt, along with Annabeth, a brilliant, strategically-minded daughter of Athena, and Grover, a satyr, that's a half-boy, half-goat, who is tasked with protecting them, Percy completes the quest, fighting monsters along the way. Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief, which soon became five books plus a spin-off series, is often seen as the next generation's Harry Potter. The first book was released in 2005. It sparked tons of interest in Greek and Roman mythology and is known for its interpretation of ADHD as a sign of battlefield superpowers and dyslexia being a side effect of the demigod ability to read ancient Greek. The series even sparked real-life Camp Half-Blood summer camps and a short-lived Broadway musical. In the late aughts, when the book got a movie deal, young readers were over the moon. When it premiered in 2010, it bombed. Time has run out. Maybe you're no son of Poseidon. Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Lightning Thief, President's Day 2010. The movie, which only went on to have a sequel instead of a whole five movie arc, just didn't meet fan expectations. The reconfigured plot was confusing to readers who already knew how the rest of the series should progress. The film aged Percy up from 12 to 16, 
Logan Lerman, who played Percy, was 18 at the time of filming. His co-stars, Alexandra Dario and Brandon T. Jackson, who played Annabeth and Grover, were 24 and 26. Kids felt cheated. Common Sense Media, a site that publishes kids' reviews of kids' media, said it all. Averaging three out of five stars, reviewers ages 8 to 14 found the movie, quote, horrible, disappointing, so bad that it's funny, and just plain weird. But no one hated the movie more than Rick Riordan himself. In a now-deleted Twitter thread, he said he's never even seen the movies. Reading the scripts alone was too upsetting. He said, To you guys, it's a couple hours entertainment. To me, it's my life's work going through a meat grinder when I pleaded with them not to do it. So yeah, but it's fine. All fine. We're gonna fix it soon. And the first step to that, of course, is finding a new age-appropriate Percy. It seems Riordan learned his lesson from the first screen adaptation and said he will be heavily involved in the new series. Last week, there was a major announcement. Walker Scobell will play the titular role. In Riordan's statement, he said Scobell is a super fan of the series and already owned a Camp Half-Blood shirt. He's known for his recent Netflix debut in The Adam Project, and he is just 13. Already, fans are jumping at the news. On Twitter, people who grew up reading the books as they came out are now in their early 20s. There are calls to start rereading the books now in preparation for the show's projected 2023 release. There is also much speculation over the casting for the other two main characters, Annabeth and Grover. Some fans are hoping that Annabeth in particular will be played by an actor of color. The series lacks explicitly non-white main characters, and many people who read the series as kids didn't feel seen in the books and movie adaptation. For now, we'll just have to wait and hope the do-over at the screen will meet superfan expectations. For WNUR, I'm Jordan Manji. Rick Riordan's tweet was read by Rick Manji. The outro music is Bring on the Monsters from the The Lightning Thief cast album. Catalog the place to find beautiful lake views, less business bros, and dead birds. Helen Bradshaw speaks with the Chicago Bird Collision Monitors to learn more. If you're a wood duck, migrating hundreds of miles might be something you're used to, but you still probably want to take a break every once in a while. And the crystal blue banks of Lake Michigan might seem like the perfect place to do just that. That is, until you mistake a window's reflection for the actual lake, hit the window full speed, and then die. This is the case for many Chicago and Evanston resident and migratory birds. This past weekend, over 100 million birds were predicted to be migrating at night in the United States, and over all of spring migration, from March to June, billions of birds migrate across North America. In the course of migration, or just flying around, over 600 million birds die in the U.S. each year from collisions. Chicago is the worst-ranked city for bird collisions in the entire nation. Well, I'd always heard that there were these instances of people reporting birds that were hitting windows in downtown Chicago, and it was, you know, it seemed like this dire problem that nobody really had a solution for, and maybe a lot of people just considered it collateral damage, and that, you know, what are you going to do about this? That's Annette Prince. 
director of the Chicago Bird Collision Monitors. Really um, am interested in it because uh, I think birds are, are wonderful and I'm very dismayed that when they travel through our area, they're in so much danger. And even though I can't uh, protect some of the habitat loss that they're experiencing, it's, it's just as vital that during their passages between North and South, we give them safe, safe passages. We can do things that improve their ability to, to survive what is a, a marathon, uh, an amazing journey that they make every year. Chicago is known for its beautiful architecture. Just walk by the Chicago River and listen to an architecture tour host telling dozens of people on their boat. But many buildings in Chicago have massive windows. These may look appealing to us, but especially when combined with bright lighting at night and their location along migratory paths, they can be detrimental to birds. But the bird deaths don't stop in Chicago. On Northwestern's campus, several buildings are particularly problematic for birds. At, at one point back in, in 2017, people really made a push about the fact that, you know, they'd been asking for years for Northwestern to do something and, and reporting the casualties. And there was a very receptive person who was in community relations at Northwestern at that point, who was really open to retrofitting one of the buildings on campus, which is the Francis Searle building. And uh, after retrofitting that, it opened the opportunity to both show how by monitoring that building after they added the window film, how what a significant decrease we had in bird strikes. If you had to pick the top three buildings that we have the most concern about, it would be uh, the Kellogg Global Hub, the Ryan Athletic Center, and the Mud Library. Since these buildings are already built and are used frequently in promotional material, it seems unlikely that they could be altered substantially for the sake of birds. But there are still many precautions that can be and have been put in place to try to mitigate the illusionistic effects of windows and lights. Uh, the Kellogg Global Hub, even though they have done some mitigation on that building, they added window film onto the east side of it, which is the place where birds are both seeing a, a deadly reflection or a transparency in that glass of a whole you know, green space that is... Um, adjacent to the east side of that building. And by adding the retrofitting, the, the number of strikes on that side has been maybe cut in half. But still, you know, from 100 birds killed, uh, now it's 50. Still, still, you know, it's a building that has so much glass. There's just so many areas that now that it's already up, trying to find ways to cover or protect or change all that glass is a, is a, is a very challenging task. Still, there are more precautions that could be taken, including with lighting. Lighting can be very dangerous, and we have seen that the buildings that leave their shades up and lights on uh, have an increased number of bird strikes. The, the Ryan Athletic Center, uh, which kind of comes in number three, that if they leave their lighting on, it, it's almost like a lighthouse beacon that can be very dangerous as far as drawing birds in to begin with. Light seems to attract birds from their migratory path. They're already navigating and orienting themselves by the stars and the moon. They use light in different ways to, um, to find their way. When they're, when they're flying. We've seen them be drawn miles away from where they were normally flying to come towards that light in a disoriented way. That then brings them the opportunity or the, the misfortune to come to encounter the glass that's in that building. According to Prince, even with protections in place and the improvements that have been observed, birds of all sizes are still in danger from these architectural trends. 
we've really seen everything, for, including endangered species. We had a least bittern that hit uh, the Kellogg building, I think it was last year. The, the lakefront campus is such an inviting place. It's, 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 a, it's a nice habitat. It's a green space that birds that have been flying all night, which is what the, the majority of these migratory birds are doing, is you know, they're coming off of a path that was following the lakefront. And a campus like Northwestern uh, looks very inviting. It's almost an obligation if you have buildings next to the, this sort of very inviting habitat to try to do something to, to make sure that the birds that encounter them aren't going to face additional danger. And when I, I see the fact that someone either has rescued something and brought it to me or, or they've seen me rescuing something and they, they get an appreciation for how important this issue is and how um, what, what a big difference, some simple things like turning, uh, turning some lights out, drawing some drapes, seeing, seeing that register for people is, is, is meaningful to me. If a building was killing 10 people a year, we'd be making sure that building changed its ways. Uh, we might have to close that building down. We, that just wouldn't be acceptable. But some buildings killing hundreds or thousands of birds uh, is either looked at as collateral damage or something that is, what are you going to do about it? Uh, and the fact that we have ways to do something about it. We have the power to, to change that. It's not a, a hopeless or confusing problem because in some way, some, some of the environmental issues in this world are very complex and it's really hard to, to know all the, way, all the things we have to do to fix them. And we, we have a lot of good strategies for, for fixing the buildings. If you do find an injured bird, you can put the bird into a paper bag or for larger birds, wait with them while calling the Chicago Bird Collision Monitors hotline at 773-988-1867. You really should care that, that our environment could crash if these birds are no longer part of, of a vital chain of life that controls insects, pollinates, plants, um, that, that we rely on whether we're aware of or fond of birds at all. They're, they're so critical to, to us surviving and going on. We need to protect these birds for their sake and for our own sake. For WNUR News, I'm Helen Bradshaw. WNUR News is excited to debut our new Monday short segment. It's the B-List, a roundup of pop culture highlights from the previous week. Here's Allison Rock with more. Welcome to the B-List, your weekly roundup of celebrity mess and pop culture. This week, sports, Coachella Weekend 1, and the Rihanna rumors put to rest. First up in celebrity news, it seems ASAP is in the clear. Last Thursday night, user Louis Via Roma tweeted that rapper ASAP Rocky had cheated on Rihanna. The alleged infidelity took place during Paris Fashion Week and happened with shoe designer Amina Muadi. But the next day, Friday, the Twitter user apologized and recanted their statement. And Muadi condemned the rumors herself in an Instagram story last weekend. In music, Coachella Weekend 1 kicked off last weekend. Harry Styles, Billie Eilish, The Weeknd, and Swedish House Mafia headlined. Surprises abounded. Singers Megan Thee Stallion and Doja Cat performed unreleased songs. Rap group Brockhampton performed for the almost last time, announcing a final album. And hyperpop duo 100 Gex's set was cut short by crew members. The festival continues next weekend. In sports, the NBA play-ins wrapped up this weekend. Highlights included a crazy Boston Celtics buzzer beater, clinching a win over the Brooklyn Nets on Sunday. The tournament now begins in earnest. Tonight, the Toronto Raptors are set to play the Philadelphia 76ers at 6.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. They'll be followed by the Utah Jazz and Dallas Mavericks at 7.30, and the Denver Nuggets and Golden State Warriors at 9 o'clock. And the Boston Marathon returned this morning for the first time since 2019. 
Kenyan runner Evan Shebet won the men's race, finishing with 2 hours, 6 minutes, and 51 seconds. American Daniel Romanchuk won the men's wheelchair title at 1 hour, 26 minutes, 58 seconds. For women's, Kenyan runner Perez Jipchurcho finished in 2 hours, 21 minutes, and 1 second, while Manuela Schar of Switzerland won the women's wheelchair race in 1 hour, 41 minutes, and 8 seconds. That's all for the B-List this week. Check in next Monday to hear about what happens this week in pop culture. For WNUR News, I'm Allison Rout. Next, a quick weather and news update. Welcome back to WNUR News. It's 6.32 p.m. Central Time. A look at the weather for tonight. It's currently 37 degrees in Evanston with a 30% chance of rain and overcast skies overnight. Tomorrow will be partly cloudy with a high of 48 degrees and low of 39 degrees. On Wednesday, you can expect windy weather with slight rain showers in the afternoon. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us at, on Twitter at WNUR News. You can listen to these and other stories of the day on our website, WNUR.news. That's WNUR.news. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Our producer t- today is Catherine Odom, and our reporters are Jack Izzo, Jordan Manji, and Helen Bradshaw. From all of us here at WNUR News, I'm Jung and Jennifer Kim. Thanks for listening. Catch our next newscast on Wednesday, April 20th at 6 p.m. Now back to scheduled programming.